0: You know, Maggie, sometimes we see cases where someone's almost on the verge of being exonerated and they die. And yet the attorneys or the Innocence Projects, whoever's involved in the case, continue the fight to prove their innocence. Many people must wonder, why don't they just drop it at that point? The person's gone.
1: You know, I think specifically because these people's families still exist and and they're still around and there's generations of kids and grandkids that want to have justice for their loved one and for themselves. So I think it's it's really important to make sure that all of these wrongs are righted.
2: You know, so I sat there and I talked to him and he was just hooked up to so many machines and... And I whispered in his ear and I said, How are you going to come back in my life? And then you're just going to die on me? You can't be my husband if you die, right?
1: From Lava for Good, this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Troy Burner. On April 21st, 1990, 27-year-old Michael Wilson was walking with his friend Joseph Kennard when two masked gunmen suddenly ambushed them. Joseph fled unharmed, but Michael was shot at least six times. He passed away days later in the hospital. Although Michael named his attackers before he died, investigators were somehow at a loss, and the case went cold for three years. But in the years following the crime, things heated up when police arrested multiple men looking to strike deals in exchange for lighter sentences. Troy Burner's name was dragged into this process. Eventually, among various conflicting statements, Troy was named as one of the people present at Michael Wilson's shooting, ready to go with a gun in his hand. Troy was a good kid with an impressive job, a radiology aide at George Washington University Hospital and he had an alibi for the time of the shooting. But Troy's career and life trajectory unfortunately came to a quick halt when his name got caught up in an elaborate murder plot.
0: You know, my whole thing was, you know, I didn't have nothing to do with it, so, you know, and they're not gonna be able to find nobody to say I had nothing to do with it. So, you know, I held on to that, you know, that belief um, where they say the truth sets you free. My name is Troy Burnham. I was wrongly convicted, serving 24 years, 8 months, and 22 days. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie?
1: Troy Berner was born in southeast Washington, D.C. on August
0: 30th, 1972. To um, Janice Berner and Janice Berner. No, that's a joke that, that <laughs> I do because I say my mother is my father. But <laughs> uh, uh, Clarence Avell smell
1: So were your parents not together or you didn't have no, a father? they No,
0: they weren't. I was raised by um, my mom and my two grandmothers.
1: Troy is the oldest of five siblings. He says in many ways, he was like a father figure, even within his extended family. As a teen, Troy got into boxing and would bring his pack of siblings, cousins, nieces, and nephews to his matches. He remembers the times they all hung out and especially remembers his cousin, Carlos.
0: You know, I used to take him to the gym with me and he was like, Man, I remember when you was in there and you was spawned with such and such and you was doing this, man, we was so happy, we was jumping around. Or I remember when, you know, I came to your fight and you know, and things of that nature and, you know, we might just be talking and I'd be just telling him how funny he is, you know. I mean, he might be like, <laughs> You say I'm funny, you know, like where you think I get it from, you know, and 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 really it don't come from me. But, you know, just the fact that, you know, we think enough for me to say that, it means a great deal.
1: Troy also had a lot of neighborhood friends.
2: I remember seeing this little kid, and I would get excited, you know, ears sticking out, <laughs> you know, little ears sticking out, socks up to here. I was like, oh, here comes Troy, you know.
1: This and- is Cherie. She grew up with Troy.
0: You didn't have to say that. There's no way that she would have known that my ears stuck out from my head <laughs> if you didn't say that. Uh-
1: <laughs> Cherie's mom and Troy's mom were friends. As children, you know, we
2: played together. We were... You know, even back then we were we were really close. Our parents did get together. My mom being a single mom, they um kinda kept us, you know, close together. You know, happenstance and, you know, circumstances in life. We grew and he went one way, I went one way.
1: At sixteen, Troy dropped out of school, but he wasn't done with his education. He got his GED before his class graduated and went on to become a radiology aide at George Washington University Hospital.
0: There were a lot of things that, you know, I was doing and would have liked to have furthered. You know, again, that was one of the things, like I said, in hindsight, you know, that would definitely have been um, something that I could have went on and done further. Unfortunately, I'm a, I'm a man of uh, many unfulfilled dreams.
1: Not long after he started his radiology job, when he was only 17, Troy was pulled into the criminal legal system, and his dreams were shattered.
0: You know, I just think, you know, there was a particular time, man, that there was so many things that I could have done. And, you know, the opportunities was taken from me.
1: just a heads up, there are a lot of names to keep track of with this story, so pay careful attention. Shortly after 9 p.m. on April 21st, 1990, Michael Wilson and Joseph Kennard, both 27, were walking down 15th Street in Washington, D.C. They had just met up with Michael's girlfriend, Jerry, her brother, and their friend. The trio left Michael and Joseph and got in their car to leave. They had only driven half a block before they heard gunfire. The shots were from two masked gunmen who all of a sudden were ambushing Michael and Joseph. Joseph fled unharmed, but Michael was shot at least six times in the back as he was trying to escape. At the hospital, he was fortunately able to tell his girlfriend, Jerry, who shot him. On a piece of paper, he wrote the names Lewis and Little Rick. But that was all she would get. On May 8th, Michael succumbed to his wounds and passed away in the hospital. Although Michael gave the names of his attackers, investigators didn't follow up on these leads, and the case went cold for almost three years. But in 1991, things started to shift when police arrested a man named Antonio Johnson. He was busted with an Uzi and other guns, as well as 500 grams of crack cocaine. Facing serious charges, he agreed to cooperate with the prosecution and became an informant. Johnson eventually wound up helping prosecutors in more than three dozen cases and earning quite a bit of money in exchange. About a year later, in 1992, after he had already agreed to cooperate with the police, Johnson implicated four people in the shooting of Michael Wilson— Louis Lou McCoy and Rick Harrod, the two men who Michael named before he died, as well as Frank Brackmort and Troy Berner. However, Johnson clarified that Troy did not fire his gun. Did you know the people involved in this crime? Were, were you familiar with any of
4: them?
0: Um, well, my co-defendants, I know them, and, and and that was essentially, you know, how I got, you know, swept up into it. The victim itself, I didn't know, um... Well, for all respect, do God bless the dead. I mean, it's not possible. If he walked in my face right now, I wouldn't know
5: who he was.
1: About four months later, a man named Antoine Payton was arrested for a murder that took place a few months before Michael Wilson's and only two blocks away from where Wilson was shot. And when he was arrested for that murder... Peyton was actually already in prison for two drug convictions. To avoid more charges, Peyton started giving information in the Michael Wilson case, and he ended up giving the same names that Johnson did Lou, Rick, Brackmort, and Troy. Eventually, Peyton was offered a plea deal to confess to his murder case for a lesser charge. The deal was he had to give a statement and testify at the Michael Wilson murder trial. Peyton agreed.
0: You know, it was a particular time in D.C., and they have all these collaborative law enforcement um, investigations going on, and they're trying to close all these cold cases. And um, this case came up. On March 15,
1: 1993, almost exactly three years after Michael Wilson's death, a grand jury investigation into his murder began. The important thing about this, though, was that Troy was not named as a subject of the investigation, only Lou, Rick, and Brackmort. At this point, Troy had not been named by the government at all. Initially, Peyton had told police that he didn't witness the shooting, but in front of the grand jury, he testified that he knew about the planned hit on Michael and that he drove to the scene and parked in an alley to watch. Peyton said he saw Lou and Rick chase down Michael and shoot him, and that Troy was not there. He said that after the shooting, they all went to Brackmore's apartment, including Troy. Everyone was angry at Troy for not showing up at the scene, and according to Peyton, Troy said he didn't participate because there would have been crossfire. A grand juror followed up with a question. Why would Troy have been afraid of the crossfire? And Peyton changed his story again. He replied that Troy actually was at the scene of the crime, but that he didn't have a gun or do anything. This was the first time Peyton actually placed Troy at the scene, and it sealed Troy's fate. On April 20th, 1993, the grand jury indicted all four men, Lou, Rick, Brackmort, and Troy, on charges of first-degree murder. So, when you get charged, what are you thinking? Like you have everything going for you? You have a great life you're you're making moves, and now suddenly you're in the middle of a murder, and you are charged with this murder
0: well um initially you know i really didn't i really didn't have any thoughts on it because you know my whole thing was um You know, I didn't have nothing to do with it, so, you know, and they're not going to be able to find nobody to say I had nothing to do with it. So, you know, I held on to that, you know, that belief um, where they say the truth sets you free.
1: The trial against the men started a year later. The judge who oversaw the trial, Judge John H. Suda, denied a request by Troy's attorney to have him tried separately from his co-defendants. At the trial, Antoine Payton testified again and gave yet another story on what exactly happened the night of the shooting and the days leading up to it. In this version, he said he saw Troy with a gun in his hands. Antonio Johnson, the first informant, also testified that he heard Brackmort brag about ordering the other guys to shoot but that Troy didn't do so because his gun was jammed. And Michael Wilson's girlfriend and her brother also testified during the trial. They said they only saw two attackers. Even with contradiction after contradiction by the state's witnesses, the case against Troy and his co-defendants was enough for the jury. And just over four years after the murder of Michael Wilson, all four men were convicted of first-degree murder. Troy was sentenced to 30 years to life the longest sentence of them all. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and to making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. Troy entered prison when he was 21 years old. A few years went by, and then one day in 2009, Troy was approached by a new arrival at the prison.
0: Um, a guy came down, you know, from another institution, you know, um, somebody from D.C., and he was like, man, I'm, I was out talking to this dude, and he was like, man, he said he think he got something that belonged to you.
1: Troy had no idea what it was, so he made a point to meet this person.
0: And so, you know, we set up a time to meet the guy on the yard, on the rack yard, and we walked on the yard, and the dude pulled out a paper and said he said I think there's you he said because since I've been here I've been hearing your name he said I think this you and it was an affidavit from Antoine Payton
1: Antoine Payton the state's star witness in Troy's trial had recanted in the signed affidavit Payton admitted he lied about being at the scene of the crime and lied about Troy being there Troy now had something he could use to help prove his innocence, so he got to work. For the next six years, Troy read up on law, and in 2015, without the help of a lawyer, filed a motion for innocence. The petition included Peyton's recantation, as well as an affidavit from Rick Harrod, saying that only he and Lou chased and shot the victims. Troy was not with them. This new account by Rick was exactly what Michael had expressed in the first place. Also by this time, Antonio Johnson had admitted that the prosecutors essentially told him what to say at trial. But the motion was denied. Troy then reached out to the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project, or MAIP.
6: You know, Troy had done a lot of work on his case and presented some new evidence to us uh,
1: that got us interested and um, had us dig deeper. This is Frances Walters. She's the former legal director of the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project and is now an attorney advisor at the Department of Justice Office of the Pardon Attorney. Frances was Troy's post-conviction attorney. What stood out in Troy's case was that
6: there was very minimal evidence of any involvement in the crime uh, and It's pretty unusual to have someone convicted on such minimal evidence. And then to have this recantation, it really,
1: it wasn't hard to come to the conclusion that Troy was innocent. Troy's team went out and confirmed the recantation from Peyton. They also discovered more information about him.
6: One of the things that had happened was Peyton said in an affidavit that he had expected Troy to help him out in one of his own cases And he got angry when Troy didn't. And so he said, you know what, I'm just going to throw him in there.
1: Remember, Peyton had made a deal with the police to testify for leniency in his own murder case.
6: We found like an FBI memo that said he was like the most prolific, uh, confidential informant they had ever used.
1: The team continued to investigate Troy's conviction. And they uncovered some alibi witnesses who could help clear his name.
6: A couple people who were from the neighborhood where the shooting took place, they learned about Troy's incarceration many years later. And when they learned about it, they said, what? Troy was playing dice with us. Again, not someone who was close to Troy. And he said, but we were all in front of this laundry room and we were all playing dice together. And so he couldn't have been there. Um, So all those pieces of evidence we brought to the court.
1: In 2017, MAIP, along with attorneys Seth Rosenthal and Lawrence Doc Smith from the law firm Venable LLP, filed a new motion. In 2018, they were granted an evidentiary hearing.
6: This is Monday, Tuesday. So Lou testified, Rick testified,
1: two alibi witnesses testified. Usually, a judge takes weeks or months to rule. But in this case, it only took a week.
6: The court had called us back because he was ready to resentence Troy to time served and let him be released from incarceration at that point. It was an amazing day. I mean, we thought it would happen, but you just never know. And so um, that was pretty special that the judge uh, did that the very week that we uh, presented all the evidence of innocence.
1: Although Troy was released on time served, he was still not exonerated at this point. But he continued to work on his innocence claim while out and about enjoying life. One night, he was out at a club. I looked up and I just
2: saw him walking through the club. And, you know, in my mind, the first thing that that flashed back was, you know, the little boy with ears sticking out. And I looked and I said, That's Troy (laughs) Burner. And I ran over there, and he gave me a hug. And he was like, little Cherie, you're back. And I'm like, where you been? And like, you didn't know? I said, well, I know some, but, you know, not everything.
1: Over the years, Troy and Cherie's mothers had stayed in touch. And so Cherie had heard little bits here and there about Troy's situation.
2: He, you know, he sat down, and we talked, and he explained and told me everything that happened.
1: From that point forward, Cherie says she and Troy became close again, like they were when they were kids. A romance soon developed, and they were inseparable. So, what happened next? Yeah,
6: so he was on parole, um, and and then Troy got really, really sick, um, and that was scary for everyone. Um, thinking that he could die before even having a decision in his innocence case.
3: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on a and Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
4: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. But it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development
1: His condition was so bad, it looked like he might not make it.
0: Yeah, they put him in a coma. Expired twice.
2: Yeah, his mom, she called me and she... She woke me up one night and she said, they lost him. And I think I... Panicked, And she said, baby, calm down. He's back. They brought him back. And, you know, I was like, Ma, don't do that. (laughs) Don't call me right away and say they lost him. But, yeah, so she called and she said, well, she said, I just want you to know. She said, he's back, you know. Just get up there and go see him. You know, so I sat there and I talked to him. And he was just hooked up to so many machines and... You know, it was just kind of hard to look at him for a little bit. But then I just, I remember leaning over and whispering in his ear because she said, you know, just go talk to him. You know, he can hear you. He's just resting. Go talk to him. And I whispered in his ear and I said, how you going to come back in my life and then you're just going to die on me? You can't be my husband if you die, right? <laughs> and so... Did his eyes just
6: pop open right then?
2: <laughs> no, nah, you, you know, that would have <laughs> that would have been yeah, that would have been a story. You know, but shortly, you know, about a month or so after that, his mom she called me, and she was just
1: he's back. Troy was put in rehab and Cherie went to see him there. You know, he just gave me the biggest hug and
2: he told me, he was like, you know, you're going to be my wife. And I said, well, you must have heard what I said to you then, huh? <laughs> and he was just kind of looking at me like, what are you talking about? Later, I said, you know, so I whispered in your ear, you know, you must have heard what I said to you. Troy was
1: alive and with his love but he was still a prisoner of the state working on his innocence claim. On March 22nd, 2020, he left rehab. But he didn't have to wait long to hear the news he had been waiting for.
0: Um, I was on the rate March 26th.
6: Just four days after he finished rehab. um, When we weren't sure he was going to make it. Wow. Yeah.
1: At 48 years old, Troy was a free man. Today, Troy is an associate with the Justice Policy Institute, helping others who have been wrongfully convicted. He's also involved with other organizations that help people caught up in the criminal legal system, including the organization Changing Perceptions, which helps formerly incarcerated people adjust to life outside prison. Troy has published multiple articles about the criminal legal system as well. on March 26, 2021, exactly 1 year from his exoneration, Troy and Cherie got married. So what are what are y'all's plans, hopes, dreams for the future? Well, I have
2: four four okay. children from a previous marriage that they've all adopted him. So he is pops. So now you're suddenly a dad. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. He's like the ultimate Stepdad and pop pop. So, we, you know, we have um, seven grandkids, all boys. You better
0: not do it. (laughs) (laughs) All boys
1: is, you know. Well, I'm going to say you're still very young to be like, you're young. You're 40, what?
0: This big 50 this year.
1: Wow, you turned 50 (laughs) this year. Okay.
0: (laughs) I might party all 50 states of city near you. Where you at?
1: As for Troy, he feels like he's been given a whole new chance at life.
0: Well, you just heard the story, you know, about me being sick. Um, and the doctor told me, you know, when I got to the rehab, he said, you know, you you a miracle. You're not supposed to be here. And I told him essentially that he was a damn lie. <laughs> you know, God said otherwise. It wasn't my time. Um, and even without that, you know, I had to settle my emotions down and find some acceptance and understanding of what happened. Because if I didn't, my emotions would have took, you know, control and just try to continue life and find, you know, that opportunity to see society again. Otherwise, I would have been lost. Comes to the point, man, where it just, you know, it had to be accepted, you know, to move on because otherwise there's nothing um, else I can do. And being here and having an opportunity, you know, to speak with you and share my story and my understanding and also, you know, in my everyday, you know, with my work. You know, I just try to pull my efforts into that and somehow uh, I come to the realization that that would allow me to make some sense out of all of this.
1: Next time, Unwrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling, Marnie Yang.
4: There was nobody that could help me at that point. My parents couldn't help. My attorney couldn't seem to protect us. I couldn't go to the police. They were the ones that were terrorizing us. I had just decided I'm just going to tell them whatever they want to hear.
1: Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis, as well as our senior producer, Annie Chelsea, researcher Lila Robinson, story editor Sonia Paul, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Connor Hall. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongful conviction on Facebook at wrongful conviction podcast and on Twitter at wrongful conviction, as well as at lava for good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of lava for good podcast in association with signal company number one.